you need to be calm in the storm. You know, leadership that's calm, that has sets clear priorities, that communicates those priorities clearly, that makes a huge difference in making sure that people don't panic and make rash decisions and and sort of take you off course. So I think being calm as a leader, staying connected, communicating, you cannot communicate too much. And then people, they may not like all your decisions, but they certainly will understand it and they'll respect it and they'll embrace it. Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive and also a leadership advisor. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. So I am personally super excited about today's episode as we are talking to a CEO who is leading one of the best performing, undoubtedly, medical device companies globally. Clark, um, as you know, our guest works in a world that's really close to my heart. It's where I spend the majority of my time. And I have to say, his name comes up regularly again and again as one of the most successful CEOs ever. I'm hugely honored to have him join us on Redefiners. And you should know, anecdotally, people talk about our guest as the godfather of MedTech. I'm particularly excited because he's in the medical device business. And since my mother-in-law just received one of their company's hips, we're very, very interested to speak to the CEO. So our guest today is Kevin Lobo, chair and CEO of Stryker, one of the world's leading medical technology companies, as you said, Nanaz. Kevin also serves on the board for Parker Hannafin, Avamed, which is a MedTech trade association, and the U.S.-India Business Council. He's also a member of the Business Roundtable and the Business Council. If he wasn't busy enough already, he helps many others to uh, outperform. Kevin, welcome to Redefiners. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Nanaz, and thank you, Clark. I'm looking forward to this. So, Kevin, we... You know, business aside, would really actually love to get to know the real Kevin and kind of start in the early days. You have a very interesting background. You were born in India. You grew up in Canada. You've lived and worked in four countries and four different industries. A lot of change. Tell us a little bit about your journey, sort of what it was like growing up and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, thanks, Nanaz. I would say I have a very untraditional path to being the CEO of a medtech company. First of all, I'm not American. Uh, I did not start in sales and marketing. I started in finance in the early part of my career. And uh, the more of my career has been outside of medtech. I actually only started in medtech at the end of 2005. So very uh, non-traditional. I always loved business growing up in Montreal and studied business uh, but I really didn't have any idea that I would be uh, in a role like this. Never imagined I'd be the CEO of anything, let alone a, a large American company. So it's been exciting. The first move I had actually to the United States, I was only about 32 years old and I was frankly a little terrified. I was a VP of a, a large chemical company in the US. And frankly, when you grow up in the, the shadow of the gorilla that is the United States, you're, you're kind of 
not sure mm-hmm. you can actually swim with the big fish. And uh, it was really intimidating, but I uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. And it was a series of fortuitous happenstances along the way that uh, has landed me here. And how did you get over the intimidation at various points, whether it was you moving to the U.S. as a 32-year-old or kind of events before that? How do you overcome the fear? Well, I've always sort of had the attitude of trying to learn. I'm a learner. I'm always curious. I ask lots of questions. And through that process, mm-hmm. people actually are very open and they tell you things. And my magic two words are, I'm new. So I've used the I'm new phrase all the time throughout my career. Yeah. Mm. At one point, I had a boss look at me and say, you're new? You've been in this job for three years. You're not new anymore. I said, well, I've only been in the industry for four years. And uh, so uh, the boss kind of laughed at me. But I think it gives you permission to challenge the status quo, to ask questions, and it's not intimidating yeah. to the person that you're asking the question. So those are my sort of magic words that have helped me along the way. But I've never been afraid. I've never been afraid to take on yeah. a new challenge, never been afraid you know, going to Paris and having to work in a foreign language, uh, even though I could speak French at dinner, it's a little different than speaking French in the office all day long. That was very intimidating. Uh, I'm very lucky, actually. I had bosses that tolerated me yeah. because I asked lots and lots of questions. And, uh, and that's sort of helped me along the way. And Kevin, did you find the fact that you were a bit different, that, you know, you weren't American, that you weren't white? Did you ever use that as an advantage? And I bring that up because... As an Iranian immigrant in the UK, at a time where there really weren't many immigrants, for years, I hated the fact that I was different. I wish I was called Jane. And it was actually only in my early 20s, you laugh, but I really, really hated my name. It was in my sort of, I guess, mid-20s where one of my clients, I was a strategy consultant, one of my clients said, you should be so grateful that you have a name that people remember and you should be so grateful that you are different. Use it to your advantage. And it's kind of, since then that I'm like, yeah, I, and I introduce myself when people can't pronounce my name. I say, yeah, it's like bananas and then drop the BA and they laugh and it sticks much more than, you know, a Jane Smith, for example. I'm glad you're laughing. Has, has, that, has that ever been your case to kind of use the fact that you're different? Uh, now that you mention it, uh, there have been times I never really thought of it, to be honest with you, because I came as a young baby to Canada. So actually, even though I'm Indian, first of all, my name doesn't sound that different. Kevin Lobo, it's a Christian Indian. 3% of Indians are Christian because my family's from Goa. So the name itself, I didn't have that issue uh, with pronouncing the name. And having grown up in Canada, I really, I'm not going through the first generation immigrant challenges that my parents went through. When they first moved, they went through those other challenges. But being different has at times been a definite advantage. I think back to when I worked in Paris, I would challenge people, and I remember once disagreeing with the CEO in a meeting, and then I'd watch the body language of the room, and it was not very pleasant. I knew something was wrong. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe I pronounced the word wrong or made a grammar mistake or something. And then afterwards, my boss pulled me aside and said, listen, you can't disagree with the CEO in a meeting in Paris. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. I said, well, then don't invite me. Why? Am I? I'm not going to come to a meeting and, and just sort of show up and nod my head if I don't agree with something. He said, no, no, you don't understand. Meetings in Paris are to communicate decisions that have already been made. Uh, If you want to disagree, you have to meet beforehand. I said, he didn't seem upset at all. He didn't look mad at me. He said, that's because you're not French. (laughs) If you were French and said that, he would have taken your head off. And uh, so being different gave me sometimes permission to ask questions and challenge. And because I wasn't from their culture, they would give me a bit more latitude to ask questions being different. I love it. Well, back to the intimidating situations. I find the medical device industry intimidating 
because I'm not an engineer, I'm not technical. So you work in a variety of different businesses, chemical companies and other things, and you end up eventually in this business. You'd have to ask a real lot of questions to understand the device business from not coming from it. What was that transition like? It was extremely hard. The first surgeon dinner I had was terrifying. My first job was running the medical device business of J&J in Canada. And my first or second day on the job, there was a dinner with some cardiac surgeons. And they were talking about restenosis rates, and I didn't know what they were talking about. So I was just kind of following the conversation. It was pretty intimidating. So then the next day I said, listen, do you have training? They said, what do you mean training? Like the sales rep training. And they said, you're the president. You're not going to go to the sales rep training. I said, sure. Give me the videos. Give me the tapes. And that's what I've done in all my jobs. But when I joined Stryker, uh, they had this whole orientation for me for my first two weeks. I said, like, this is all fine and dandy, but um, I need to learn about the anatomy. And they said, what do you mean? I said, I want somebody to stand in front of me with a knee model and a hip model and explain to me. So this uh, very nice man, Stan Kaplan, was in my office the next day with these models. And I looked at this thing and said, okay, so what's that? He said, well, that's the ACL. Okay, what's that? <laughs> that's the PCL. It started at such a basic level, but I wanted to learn. And then I went and I said, okay, now I need to go watch some surgeries. And it was stunning to me how much more complex hip and knee surgery is. And anyways, just to learn the complexities. So I'm a kind of visual learner. I like to be with people. And I think that grassroots effort pays off immensely because when I'm talking to my employees, I have a deeper understanding of what really makes the business tick, what the role of our sales forces are, yeah. how marketing and engineering uh, engages. Kevin, we talk about leadership at Russell Reynolds Associates, and we are quite convinced that, as we've talked about IQ and EQ, and our listeners have heard this before, that LQ, the learning quotient, is increasingly determining the success of leaders, particularly chief executives that their need in a rapidly changing world to continuously learn and embed that in a culture to be continuously competitive, we think it's a huge competency around successful leadership. As a learner, do you embed that in the culture of Stryker or do you advise those that report to you? Is this personal or do you believe this is something that Stryker has as part of its culture? Well, that's a great question. We do strength finders at Stryker. And in the strength finders, my second strength is learner. So certainly there's an element of it that's me. That's part of who I am. But I do believe Stryker is a learning company. And I, and I say that because we index extremely high on humility. At Stryker, being right isn't that important as getting the right answer is. And so you don't have a lot of people trying to one-up each other or uh, sort of leading with ego. We actually hire people that are driven but are, are humble. I think if you're a humble person... By nature, you're going to listen more and you're going to be more of a learner. I always tell people, as you become more senior, the questions that you ask are more important than the answers that you give to your teams. Yeah. And so when I do business reviews, it isn't about me telling someone what a decision is because they're the experts on sports medicine or whatever it is. But the questions that I ask hopefully stimulate them to think more broadly about the path that they're on or gives them ideas or inspiration to pursue different pathways. I can't be an expert on everything. And they're not really looking for answers from me. They're looking for guidance or general direction. Yeah. And so I do believe that the question, that asking of questions becomes, for me, it's important for myself to learn, but I think it actually helps the teams a lot. So 
Kevin, the medtech industry has been absolutely rife with M&A activity, but I think you've taken it to a whole different spectrum because if I'm not mistaken, it's 55 acquisitions that you've done across a huge spectrum of products and, and companies. The one that you should know everyone sort of still to this day talks about is the acquisition that you made of Mako at a time where, I mean, robotics, no one really thought about robotics, certainly not in the world of orthopedics. And obviously all your competitors are kicking themselves for the fact that they are many, many years behind you. Do you have a framework as to how you go about assessing what acquisitions you make? Some of the ones that you've made, like the robotics one, have been quite risky. Talk us through, I'd, I'd kind of love to know how you've gone about making these acquisitions, what the framework is, what your thinking process is. And do you ever worry about the risk? Well, if you want to win in any business, you have to be willing to take risk. So I don't really worry about things. I try to make sure we make the best decisions, mm -hmm. but there's always going to be risks in every decision you make. And not all acquisitions are going to be fabulous from a value creation standpoint. I think our batting average has been pretty high. Mm -hmm. We've done very well in choosing the right assets, paying the right price and driving value. But of course, some have been better than others. Mako is a bit exceptional because it was so disruptive. And even my own surgeons yeah. that use Stryker products, our advisors were furious when we did the deal. And they thought I lost my mind, some of them, and said, you know, we don't need robotics and orthopedics. And I said, well, no, you don't because you're well established towards the end of your career, but the up and comers do. And that deal really was about differentiating ourselves and improving the outcomes in particularly with knee replacement, where 25% of patients weren't happy with their knee replacement. But getting back to your question about the model, I focused on category leadership, where I wanted us to be the leaders in every category we played in, because we had these terrific decentralized businesses with great sales forces, and I wanted to give them more and more technologies. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the mindset, buy high growth assets mm -hmm. and feed our business units as basically it's external R&D yep. is the way I looked at it. We had a very conservative balance sheet when I took over as CEO, and investors were screaming at me to buy back shares and were furious that we weren't. And we were sitting on this cash hoard. And I said, listen, I'm not buying back shares. We have amazing commercial offense, great execution. We're going to use it to do acquisitions. And some of the investors were unhappy with that answer. And I said, listen, you can buy someone else's stock if that's not what you want. I'm being very clear about our strategy. It's not mysterious. And we're going to become a serial acquirer. Mm. And that's what we now are. Yeah. And we've gotten better at integration, better at choosing assets. It's like exercise. The more you do this, the better you get at it. But the model, like if you look back 10 years ago or when I, I became CEO almost 10 years ago, we were not leaders in sports medicine. We now are. We were not leaders in spine. We now are. Yeah. Upper extremities, lower extremities. But getting back to Mako, you know, that, I was not even a year as CEO. So that was obviously a very risky move to make yeah. as a new CEO. I felt it was really going to differentiate us. And the good news is I had started to talk about this when I was the head of orthopedics and I planted a seed with the board. And so I didn't just hit them out of the blue. There was a series of meetings that kind of built up to when I wanted to actually move on the acquisition. And so I think it's important for boards that decisions are not new decisions, that they sort of are old decisions. Uh, it definitely helped that they saw that this is someone who isn't worried about protecting their job and playing defense He's actually a man of convictions and he wants to move forward and help the company win. And it took some extra work with a couple of the board members to get them bought in. And we had a slow start for the first year, so that wasn't fun. But after that, once we started to gain our stride, it certainly scored huge points and has been very helpful both to me and for the management of the company. 
We've been through an enormous period of history recently, and certainly since you joined Stryker, whether it's financial, health, pandemic, inflation, supply chain. What are some of your lessons learned when it's come to crisis management since you joined the company and since you became CEO? Oh, there's so many. Uh, I could start off with you need to be calm in the storm. You know, leadership that's calm, that has sets clear priorities, that communicates those priorities clearly, that makes a huge difference in making sure that people don't panic and make rash decisions and take you off course. So I think being calm as a leader, staying connected, communicating, you cannot communicate too much. We were doing weekly calls, then biweekly calls, and, and just trying to keep everybody together was really, really important. We had our three priorities are very clear, protect our employees, serve our customers, and have financial discipline. And I said them over and over and over again as we made different sub-decisions and spot decisions. And people could always go back to that framework. And then people, they may not like all your decisions, but they certainly will understand it and they'll respect it and they'll embrace it. We'll be right back with Kevin Lobo after a quick break with Dana Kruger, a managing director in our Amsterdam office. Dana shares insights on digital transformation and the health tech industry. Digitization is transforming almost every business and changing the landscape of traditional and new market players across nearly all industries today. The healthcare technology industry is not immune to either of these trends. To be ready to handle this pace of technology acceleration, organizations need to rethink their leadership strategy to address the scarcity of tech-ready leaders. We identified four key competencies that this new breed of leader will need to have. Digital acumen, innovation, inclusivity, and sustainability. Digitally savvy leaders think and resolve enterprise issues using tech-forward competencies and orientation. They build cultures that drive tech advancement. Innovative leaders are entrepreneurial by nature and are able to productively disrupt legacy paradigms. They cut through bureaucracy and are not afraid to go against the grain. Inclusive leaders span boundaries and practice courageous accountability. They foster innovative collaboration to unlock the unique contributions of each person in a group. Sustainable leaders balance immediate needs with long-term perspectives. Being purpose-driven, they successfully and effectively navigate competing interests and societal impact. To learn more about how digitization is transforming leadership in healthcare technology, go to russellreynolds.com slash insights. And now back to our conversation with Kevin. Kevin, you made a point earlier on about how you executed the deals well, but you actually really integrated them well as well which is not an easy thing to do. And look, if you look at some of the acquisitions, particularly in the orthopedic space, Zimmer Biomet being the biggest one, I mean, for many years later, you still had two very disparate companies. I've never, as an external observer, I have never seen that of Stryker. It, it's the culture has always been very smooth. It's always been one. You've always integrated the acquisition seamlessly. Is there a secret sauce that you've applied? I think that might be the appearance on the outside, but okay. I would tell you early okay. on, we weren't fabulous at, at integrating. <laughs> I would tell you the first year of Mako was difficult. The first year of Berktold was difficult, but we found our feet pretty quickly. And since then, honestly, if I look at the last 10, 15 deals, uh, we've just gotten better and better at integration because you build muscle. We talk about culture and, and people. You have these medical devices, but it is the, the culture 
that makes it all so successful. And I loved your quote, like exercise, the more you do, the better, and you've proven that, even if they were hard in the first year. We talk about living in the time of the great resignation, that post-pandemic people want to do other things. They want to make sure they believe in their company. You were quoted, I think just today, in Fortune, saying that you have a new metric about the number of patients' lives that you touch, and you counted 100 million last year, and you're going to track that every single year. And it was wildly received by everyone at the company. How do you think about retaining talent and culture? Obviously, it's something we and our clients are incredibly focused on in this past year and going forward. Talent and culture is really the differentiator for any organization, and certainly that is true for Stryker. And we're very focused on making sure we retain the great talent that we have. Part of the reason people love Stryker is our mission statement, which is together with our customers, we are driven to make healthcare better. So it's it's a very purpose-driven company. We have stories about lives that are saved, lives that are improved through the use of our technologies all over the company. But what we didn't have before was one metric that kind of encapsulated all of the lives that we touch. And we spent much of a year, it's not as easy as you think to, to actually count the number of lives that you touch with all of our different products. But being able to have one metric and one methodology has been really terrific. We know that the market for labor is very tight and we have to make sure that our employees feel and resonate with the culture of the company and with the purpose of the company. So I would say it's never been more important. Uh, we've always been focused on that. But uh, I think this coming up with a metric and talking about it more externally is really important. Hmm. Kevin, can we talk about diversity? You are not lucky in that medtech and I think orthopedics in particular is uh, certainly not rife with diverse talent. And I think even to this day, there are not many female leaders, uh, certainly not in the commercial world and, and probably even fewer leaders from ethnic minorities. How have you been able to break down some of those diversity barriers or challenges at Stryker? And then did you yourself, as someone who is diverse, face any of those challenges as, as you kind of moved up through J&J and ultimately to Stryker? Well, let me start with personally, for me, I, I never really faced those barriers. So I, mm -hmm. I don't perceive that I did. Mm -hmm. I think I was very fortunate to be able to be given the opportunities that I have. Uh, certainly, I've seen that happen to others, uh, but I was very lucky to have a woman boss very early in my career at a time when there, there weren't as many women supervisors. And so for me, it's always felt natural. You just want the best talent and it doesn't matter whether they're tall or short or women or men. And uh, when I became CEO, I, I made it a very important plank of my tenure here was to make sure we made big strides in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm really pleased with the progress we've made. We certainly have more work to do, mm -hmm. but uh, if you look at the VP level, we're eight percentage points higher than we were six years ago. Some of our sales forces have doubled the number of women within their population, which is really exciting. Yeah, We have four of our 10 directors of Stryker are women and four are diverse. And so we've made a lot of strides. And when I was the chair of Advamed, the trade association, for my two-year term, we created a new pillar on diversity, equity, and inclusion, because we would like the whole industry to become yeah. an industry that attracts more women. I'm pretty excited that three of our big commercial leaders in the U.S., Kathy Truby, who runs our hip business, is a giant business. We have Jess Matheson, who runs our acute care beds and stretcher business, and Anne Malali, who runs our, our defibrillator, um, our emergency care business we have Kate Stewart running our ENT business. And then internationally, we have a 
women running many of our countries and regions, Latin America, as well as EMEA, as well as India. Well, Kevin, the one stat that you said that gives me the biggest hope is that increase in sales reps. Because, and Clark, you talked about, you know, this being an intimidating industry. I tell you, I'm not intimidated easily, but orthopedic surgeons intimidate me. <laughs> they are the type of surgeons that break your bones, right? <laughs> so to get women, you know, carrying the bag and having that interaction right from the start, I think that's awesome. I think that's really awesome. Yeah, what's funny is if you look at Australia, where we have a very large orthopedic business, or even in the UK, we have a roughly 50% of the sales reps are women wow. in those markets, which is striking. Amazing. So that's, that's what I say in the U.S. Why? It's just historic, right? Mm. It's Obviously, Japan is the, the area where we have the least representation. India is not uh, much better. So there are variations by, let's call them country dynamics at play. But in the United States, there's no reason why you'd have such a high percentage of very successful orthopedic female sales reps in these countries and not in the United States. There's not that, culturally that much difference. So there really shouldn't be any reason. It's a lot of it's the, just the mentality, the history that we have to overcome. And so things are getting better, but, uh, but still work to do. Yeah. That's one significant transformation as you think about Stryker. We had Mario Schlosser, who was the CEO of Oscar Health on Redefiners a couple of months ago. And he talked about data and emerging technologies changing the customer experience and, and obviously patient outcomes. How do you look at technology? How do you look at transformation? How do you push the envelope, not just in your acquisitions, but in this mindset of continuous improvement and uses of new technologies? Well, first of all, I would say that every company now is a technology company or a digital company. I don't care what industry you're in. Uh, if you're not moving from the analog to the digital era, you're going to be left behind. If you think about something like Mako, that acquisition we referred to, that is new technology to help enable a surgeon to do their job more effectively with more safety, with more precautions, less invasive to the patient. And we're seeing that proliferate all over our organization. And so you have to have an openness and an open-mindedness to technology and realize that our job is to help solve problems for our customers. Yeah. And oftentimes technology is a way to do that. Vocera is the most recent acquisition, a very large acquisition, to automate workflow in the hospitals to take cognitive load off of nurses so they can have less stress in their day-to-day -day jobs. Uh, again, not something I would have imagined Stryker getting into five years ago. Uh, so really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. We like to end each podcast with a set of rapid fire questions. This is where we're going to give you a series of five questions and we ask you to please respond as quickly as possible. Are you ready? All right. I'm ready. Okay. Fire away. <laughs> Question number one. When do you do your best thinking? Is it the morning, afternoon or evening? Evening. When you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a businessman. <laughs> <laughs> number three. What is your favorite way to decompress from a long day at work? Uh, I like to play sports, either work out or play golf. Okay. And what is or was your most or least favorite part of working from home? People give me energy. Uh, so staying away from people was, uh, was really difficult for me. The more time I spend with people, the more energy I get. Mm. And so it was extremely frustrating. And as you know, right now I'm in my office, it's, it's great to be able to walk around and see people. It, that gives me energy. So that was the most frustrating part. And I've got quite a deep one for the last one, Kevin. All right. Uh, define what success means to you. Oh, success is, is really uh, lifting 
the organization that you're leading to new heights. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, to me, defines success. Got it. Fantastic. Thank you. We'd love to just summarize a little bit of what we heard for our listeners. And Kevin, I like most that it's okay to be terrified in a new role or as a new leader. (laughs) That you've been terrified, but your ability to ask questions and to be a lifelong learner, whether it's looking at models of knees and hips in a medical device company, or just continually asking the questions. But asking questions with humility is an amazingly effective way to be a good leader but your ability to ask and learn, the learning quotient is very high. Second part about risk-taking, that you have to take risks to win, and you have taken risks. But this concept of communicating with the board, I thought was no surprises. Decisions that are not new plant the seeds so that the decision is old by the time it becomes a decision. I think is a pretty wise strategy, particularly in the changing nature of boardrooms today. And this concept of mission and purpose that we're all very familiar with, but you've brought it home about having a simple, clear metric. Every company would have different ones, but to have one simple metric you can come back to and back to and back to makes a huge difference. The concept of your sales force being, in some countries, 50% women in the industry you're in is to be admired. And finally, in crisis, be calm, be clear, communicate. Be calm, be clear, communicate, and then over-communicate. Even tough choices will be accepted if it's clear, consistent, and over-communicated. So some great lessons learned. No wonder Stryker is successful. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com. Find us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time.